1 Corinthians chapter 10, in your pew Bibles, it's on page 811. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan reverie. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. May God bless the reading of his word. So as Jason prayed, I think it's obvious to all of us that we're in the midst of a presidential campaign or primary campaigns. When you think about it, think first of all the Democratic side. Do you suppose that it's fair to say that Hillary and Bernie are the, basically the same candidate, that they hold the same viewpoints? Or on the Republican side, that Trump and everybody else holds the same views? You know, and, and then Democrats and Republicans, would we say they're all the same? The whole exercise is pointless if they're all the same. Would anyone even assume that they are? You know, they spend all their time differentiating themselves from each other. Or or think about economic systems. You know, Bernie is very careful to point out or describe himself as a democratic socialist because he doesn't want you to think he's a totalitarian socialist. He admires Denmark, not Cultural Revolution China. Or, you know, uh, the question is whether we can, whether America would ever elect any kind of socialist, democratic or otherwise. You know, for us, capitalism is antithetical to, say, communism, to the old Soviet Union, or totalitarian socialism, if you would, really. Are all economic systems the same? Are, are, Are all presidential policies and all presidential parties and all presidential candidates the same? We wouldn't ever think of equating Democrat and Republican, Bernie and Hillary, 
Trump and Bush, we wouldn't ever think of equating socialism in any of its forms with capitalism or we wouldn't ever equate those. And yet people will say that all gods are the same simply because they share a few common elements, just like all politicians and political parties and all economic systems share a few common elements. Somehow we realize that not all politicians are the same, not all political parties are, are the same, not all economic systems are the same, but somehow people think all religions are the same. You know, it, it boggles the mind. What we want to look at today is how do Christians... Practicing Christians live in a world where other religions are practiced. How do we live in a world? How do we live in a neighborhood? How do we live? Uh, how do we relate in job force where multiple religions, diverse religions are practiced, where not all religions are the same? How do we live and work in that kind of an environment? Now, first, we want to review where we're headed or where we've been coming from. Uh, basically, what we're looking at now, you know, the Old Testament, we looked at God's plan from the beginning of Eden and then in the fall until the end, what, what God has been planning all along, and then fulfilled in Christ partially now, then fulfilled in Christ ultimately at the end. And in this in-between time, Christ's first coming, Christ's second coming, we're living partly in the New Age, partly not in the New Age. And the question is, what is life meant to be like for Christians in this in-between time. And so we looked at the book of Acts, which really reminds us that our priority as a church and our priority as individuals really has to be that all the world hear the name of Christ. That's the clear central message of the book of Acts. And then First Thessalonians, how do we deal with a culture that stands at odds at many points with our fundamental convictions? How do we live in an antagonistic culture or world? Second Thessalonians, you know, Christ has come. Christ is coming again. How do we live in this in-between time as we wait for Christ to come back? There's so many things that will be so much better when Christ returns. How do we wait? What should we do while we wait for Christ to return? And then... This whole race and ethnicity tension, well, but there's also an economic tension and a gender tension that Galatians addresses. How do we live, male and female? How do we live, diverse races? How do we live, different countries of origin? How do we live together now that God calls us into one church? How do we live with this diversity? And Galatians address that. And then 1 Corinthians addresses a whole number of topics, and so we're spending a few weeks here. But all of the topics are, are common, have this one feature in common, is that really what the Corinthians had done was they'd become Christians, but they hadn't yet separated far enough from their culture. Now, when we become Christians, some parts of our culture we can keep. At least we can redeem in some parts of our culture, we pretty much have to reject outright. And the Corinthians hadn't yet figured out which of those things they could keep, which of those things they had to redeem, and which of those things they had to reject outright. And so Paul's walking through a number of issues with them because of the contention. He's addressing a number of issues where they had imported their culture into the church. And so the first one we saw was from chapters 1 to 4, where they, re they had imported uh, consumerism. The kind of consumerism 
that where you buy, you evaluate books, you evaluate movies, you evaluate stores you shop at, all by consumeristic tendencies. And they brought that into the church and evaluated pastors and leaders by those same consumeristic tendencies. And then in chapters 5 to 7, some of them imported an overactive sex life into the church, and some of them imported an underactive sex life. Uh, sex is all there is in the world, and the best thing in the world, and, and sex is not, should not be part of this world. The, both of those ideas had come into the church, and Paul had to sort through a lot of issues in the three chapters on sex. And today, what we look at is how Christians... What Paul looked at in 8 to 10 was how Christians relate to other religions in this in-between age. Now, there's one whole category of cases that Paul doesn't touch because it was obvious to them. And there's a whole other category of issues that he did touch because it wasn't obvious to them. And oddly enough, both of these things are ambiguous to us. They had one settled, so Paul doesn't have to address it. And the one they had settled was this. They knew that all religions weren't the same. Uh, they lived in the midst of a world full of, there was a lot of uh, travel, uh, a lot of resettlement, a, a lot of immigrations. So they lived in, the, in a world full of diverse ethnicities and religions. And they knew all religions weren't the same. Even Jews a few of them still had come from a Jewish background. They knew that it was something different to come into a Christian faith. To add Christ to Judaism meant a fundamental transformation of Judaism. They knew that Judaism was not the same as Christianity. And a number of them had come from Greek religions, Roman religions, Egyptian religions, Anatolian religions. They knew when they came into Christ that they were converting. It wasn't the same thing. They also knew that the Ten Commandments fundamentally prohibit idolatry. They prohibit the worship of other gods, whether idols or not gods. So they had no debate about this. They had no questions about this. They knew they, they could not go into the temples that they used to go into and worship those gods. They knew they could not bring those idols, those god idols home and set them up in their household and worship those gods. They knew that this was not possible, not, not feasible. It's not up for discussion. So Paul never has to deal with this at all. Now, in our modern world, for example, we have a phenomenon where we're trying to really, you know, we're trying to show acceptance and tolerance and all this. And so it's common enough on college campuses. It's common enough in, uh, uh, say, even in the Boy Scouts, to have interfaith services. It's common enough to go to religious wedding ceremonies in other religions and invite people who don't practice Christianity into our wedding ceremonies. And, you know, it's common enough for us to have this crossover where we would invite other people to our worship services and so they might invite us to theirs. Or we have a generic interfaith worship service where all the different religious groups on campus try to come together and worship. Or interfaith worship services in, in, within the Boy Scouts or other organizations like that. Where we're trying to show tolerance and acceptance and live together peaceably. Because we fear the alternatives of open warfare. Now the Corinthians knew better than to do this sort of thing. 
They knew they could not join somebody else's worship service. They didn't ask Paul about it. Paul didn't tell them about it. Not in this letter, because it was off the table. It was not open to discussion. They knew that. What they had to address was something more subtle. Something you commonly have to address in Asia, where Muslims and Buddhists and Taoists and Muslims can live in the same neighborhood, work at the same jobs. Something we're going to increasingly have to address in America as we have waves after wave of immigrants that are coming no longer from northern Europe or even southern Europe, but from Asia. They had to address, how do we relate socially? Notice, they weren't going to the other temples to worship. That was off the table. How do we relate socially with our friends and neighbors who practice other faiths? How do we relate socially when there's a little bit of religious tinge, a little bit of religious overlay to the social event? So for some examples. Now, we can be thankful for the dry climate of Egypt because papyrus, which was the common writing material made out of reeds in the first century, papyrus was very fragile. Basically, humidity would destroy it. But Egypt has been so dry that some papyrus has survived from the first few centuries of the Christian era. And so we still have invitations that illustrate the phenomenon that they would face, invitations sent out by citizens in the early first, second century. So notice this invitation. An invitation where a man invites his neighbors and associates and friends to a meal a sacrificial meal in the temple of his God. Cherimon invites you to dine at the banquet of the Lord Serapis in the temple of Serapis tomorrow from the ninth hour. Simple invitation. A man might send out, saying basically, come and eat. You know, it's an invitation to a meal. But it's held in the temple because that was one of the places where they had dining rooms. You know, it's just like churches today, right? You've got a worship hall and you've got the fellowship hall next door. And this man is not inviting his friends to come worship his God. All he's saying is, look, I'm going to make a sacrifice. I'm going to have a big meal. I, we can't eat all that meat. We can't refrigerate it. You know, I'll either sell it in the marketplace or we can just gather all my friends together and we'll go to the fellowship hall and we'll have a meal. It's not particularly a religious event. No, not necessarily. It's just got food that's been offered in sacrifice and now we come together in the fellowship hall. So they could be invited to a meal like that in the temple. Less problematic or more controversial, they could be invited to a wedding banquet for the neighbors held in the temple. Again, because the temple was often where animals were sacrificed and where they had dining rooms. Archaeologists have still have uncovered the temple of Asclepius and then a number of dining rooms in the fellowship hall at Asclepius, in the temple of Asclepius. And so the wedding banquet might read like this. Dioscorus invites you to dine at the wedding of her son on the 14th of Mesor in the temple of Sebasius in the ninth hour. Now, your neighbor is childs are getting married. And warm relationships to your neighbors with your neighbors matters. Do you go to the wedding feast? It's a wedding. It's not they're not inviting you into the worship service. It's a wedding. Do you go? Because it's held in the temple. 
It might not be a wedding. Uh, it could be a birthday party. Just like uh, with mm, traditional Asian communities, so in ancient Greco-Roman era, first birthday, if a child survives to be one year old, this is a big deal. You celebrate. Diogenes invites you to dinner. It's a dinner for the first birthday of his daughter. It's a birthday party. It just happens to be held in the temple of Serapis tomorrow. Not in the, you don't go worship and then go next door to eat. He'd go worship and sacrifice. And then he'd go next door and hold a birthday party for his daughter with all of his neighbors and friends. Now, friendship with your neighbors and your colleagues, business contacts, just common civility, all of these factors would press the Corinthians to go join the meal, even though it was held in a temple. And even less obviously religious, and therefore even more controversial is, what happens if these weddings or these birthday parties are held in a private home? Antonius Ptolemaeus invites you to dine at the table of Serapis in his home from the eighth hour onwards. The table of Serapis in his home. You see, what would happen is, as in traditional Asia, much of the rest of the world, southern hemisphere at least, people had family altars. They'd have an altar to Serapis and to the ancestors and so forth in, in their home. And they would, this is called, well, the, the text here is translated table of Serapis. By, in our language, we'd say the altar of Serapis. They would make the offering, they'd, they'd cook the food, they would lay it out before the altar of Serapis. And then they'd serve it at tables with all their neighbors and friends invited over. Now, it could be a birthday party, it could be a wedding feast, it could just be a I want to be nice with my neighbors thing going on here. And it's in the home. Can you go? This is the issue they faced. Now, we want to work our way through the text. We want to work our way through slowly, and then we we'll talk about how it applies to us. Well, actually, we're going to work our way through more than slowly. It's kind of fast, but breakneck. But... We, first, we want to see what Paul said to them in their issue, and then what he would say to us in a comparable issue today. Now, we can't go through the whole argument, because really the argument Paul takes is three chapters. And most people read this wrong, so I'm just going to comment on it really briefly, but, but pay close attention to this point. A lot of people go directly to 1 Corinthians 8. And they take random verses out of 1 Corinthians 8, and they say, you see, this is the answer. I, I've never seen anyone get to 1 Corinthians 10 if you ask them about this. They always jump to 1 Corinthians 8. Paul says some strong things in 1 Corinthians 8. They grab that and say, okay, this governs how we answer. 1 Corinthians 8 is not Paul's position. It doesn't fit. It contradicts what Paul says. 1 Corinthians 8 is the Corinthian viewpoint that Paul is actually correcting. So if we jump into 1 Corinthians 8, pull out random verses, and then live by them, what we're doing is actually what the Corinthians did, and the very thing that Paul tried to correct. So we have the Corinthian argument. They say, we know these things. Uh, you know, basically, they said, this is a theological issue. Our theology is right. Here's our theology. 
And the first point of their theology, there's only one God. It doesn't matter. Go into the temple, eat in the fellowship hall, eat at home when the temple, when the food's been offered. None of this matters. Because we know there's only one God. We're not worshiping. This is not idolatry. It's just food. And the third argument they develop is we have the right to live by our theology because our theology is right. And if Paul spends all of 1 Corinthians 8 trashing their argument. And in order to understand 1 Corinthians 8, you've got to figure out what their argument was and then see how Paul trashes it. We won't spend our time there today. We don't have the time. Then in chapter 9, it looks like Paul's going on a roundabout journey. Who knows where? It looks like he lost his focus, his train of thought. But when an argument is long in the first century, one way to break it up is less like a sermon. When a sermon's too long, you throw in an illustration. Talk five more minutes, throw in another illustration. So Paul throws in an illustration for 1 Corinthians 9. At the same time, he kind of twists a knife in the Corinthians, you know. Basically, he said, I'm telling you, you can't use your rights. That's, this is not an issue about theology. It's not an issue of rights. You can't live by your theology. You can't live by your rights. None of that is valid. Take, for example, me, my theology and my right. I had the right to be paid by you, and I didn't use that right. We can't always live by our theology. Theology says I have a right to be paid. I didn't use that right. We can't always live by our theology. That's what I'm trying to illustrate for you. You benefited because I didn't charge you. Now I'm asking you not to, not to exercise your theology and your rights. So basically, it's just an illustration, a long illustration where he's trying to mm, guilt the Corinthians into obeying him because they're arguing with him. Now the real argument of Paul's position comes in chapter 10. And this is where we'll spend a little bit of time. How do we interact as Christians with other religions? Paul's position, Paul's argument, the Bible's teaching, comes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 because there'll be some startling pieces to the argument. Paul sets up two parameters He said, in this situation, eating could kill you. In this situation, eating is perfectly okay. Don't worry about it. And then he talks about life in between those two parameters. So in the situation, first situation, eating can kill you. Socializing can kill you. So basically, what he's warning them is, socializing with people who practice other faiths. Notice, notice. He does not say worshiping other gods can kill you. They know that. He doesn't have to tell them that. They don't ask. They know. They're not arguing with him about that. I mean, that's obvious. You can't go through the book of Exodus without realizing. And they've gone a lot further along than the book of Exodus. You know, this is from the beginning of the Old Testament to the end. Worshiping other gods can kill you. They're not worshiping. They're socializing. And what Paul warns them is that some of our social interactions with people who worship other gods could kill us. And we're not talking about E. coli that you pick up at a local fast food restaurant. We're talking about, I mean, this is really hard to talk about in America, but we're talking about God may kill you. God killed them. God may kill you. So take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. You know, we see 
Paul goes back to Israel's history and said, Israel's history shows us that God treats this stuff very seriously. God killed the Israelites in the wilderness. And why? Take a look at 10.7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Don't be idolaters because idolatry is one of the four sins for which God killed the people in the wilderness. And Paul's saying, look, God killed them for idolatry. God could kill you for idolatry. But he's saying something far more subtle and important and sophisticated than that. Some far more subtle. Because look at what he... You see, Paul writes in... in take a look at chapter... Two, well, we're going to compare it... To, 1 Corinthians 10.7 with Exodus 32.6. He quotes Exodus 32. But I'll show you up on the screen. Here's what he says in 10.7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then eventually God kills them for it. You see, I quoted, the Old Testament quotation is in yellow. You see the problem in Paul's logic? Where's the word idolatry? Where's the word worship? Not there. They sat down and eat and drink, and they rose up to play, i.e. to engage in sex. You know, often the second part of a meal, first you have the meal, and then the second thing is you have drinking and sex in the ancient times. Uh, the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play, and, and God killed them. That's all Paul says. And he's quoting Exodus 32.6. Notice what Exodus 32.6 says. They rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. They made offerings to these gods, these idols that they put up. They made offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And Paul skips all that white. He skips the part about the worship. He skips about the, the burnt offerings and peace offerings. He skips that when he quotes it. And all he quotes is the yellow part. Do you see what his point is? Worship with somebody without another religion, worship of other gods, worship with uh, those who are worshiping other gods, that's idolatry, but that's obvious. Everybody knows that. We don't need to talk about that. What are we talking about? We're talking about the eating and the drinking and the social events connected with the worship. That's what we're talking about. So Paul skips out the worship part and says, even this eating is idolatrous. Because if you follow along in 32.6, it's after the eating and playing that God kills them. So Paul's point is not just the worship itself, but the social events attached to the worship are idolatrous. So sometimes socializing can kill you. And he makes that argument from Israel's history. He makes that argument from Christian communion like we just had. When we have communion, what's going on here? 10, 14 to 17. Therefore, my... Oh, I speak to sensible people. Uh, verse 15. Judge for yourselves what I say. When we come together and drink the cup of thanksgiving, is this not a participation in the blood of Christ? And when we break bread together, is this not a participation in the body of Christ? And... Because there's one loaf, we who are many are one body. It, it connects us to the Christ, the body and blood of Christ, vertically. It connects us to each other as we eat together. 
So what he's saying is, when you go to a religious festival where people are worshiping and then they're eating and you're not worshiping, you're just eating. That eating, just like Christian communion, that eating connects you with their gods because you're eating the food that's been offered. And it connects you with them secondarily in their worship because it connects you with them because they've worshiped. So Paul says there's a vertical connection and a horizontal connection in communion. This shows us that if we go to social events associated with worship of other gods, there's a vertical connection and a social connection. We see it from the Old Testament. We see it from Christian communion. And we see it, Paul says, too, from Jewish sacrifice. Everybody that eats the food participates in the altar. You don't have to worship. You eat the food and that entails the worship. Secondarily, it connects you with the worship. So Paul is clearly indicating from both from Israel's history, from communion, Christian communion, from Jewish sacrifice, that socializing, some social events, if they're connected with the religious activities, social events can entail idolatry. And then he explains why it's deadly. Not because of demons, not because of the other gods. What he says in 10, 19 to 22 is... We cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of spirits too. You cannot have party both in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The challenge here is that God will be provoked. Not that other gods or demons will harass us. On the other hand, socializing can be perfectly legitimate. He says, you know, if, there's, if meat from, comes from the market, don't worry about it. Some of the meat from the market would have started in the temple. And then would, the priests would have made money by selling the extra sacrifices. They'd sell the meat to the, temp, to the marketplace. The market dealers would sell it to the customers. He says it doesn't matter whether it came from the temple or not. You're not eating in the context of worship. Nobody's eating in the context of worship. You just bought it from the marketplace. It doesn't matter. Social events that are entirely social and have no religious elements to them, they're perfectly legitimate for you to take part in. And then he applies it all to their situation. So if an unbeliever, if a worshiper of another god invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. It doesn't matter. If you're just at a meal and there's no religious elements to it at all, they're not making an offering to their gods, the meal's not in the temple, it's just in a private home. You're just there for the meal, not for any worship elements. Even though you walk up to his house and you see his God on the front of the house, because there would be a God shelf at the front of the house. Even though you walk into the foyer and you could see into the dining room and you see the God's tile on the wall of the dining room, because they put the gods on the wall of the dining room, the patron deities on the wall, it doesn't matter. Even though you know very likely that they've offered this to the sacrifice, they're not offering it in your presence. There's no religious overtones to this meal. Just go ahead and eat. Unless, he says, we sacrificed this food earlier. Because that shows you he thinks you shouldn't be eating. And your eating will confuse him. In that case, don't eat. So basically it comes down to this. If there is a social event with the religious overtones... We don't participate in either the social event or the religious overtones. If there's a social event without any religious overlay or overtones, we can participate fully. That's basically what it comes down to. So here's four contemporary derivatives I would draw from this 
passage. First of all, you know, I couldn't have said it more clearly as we went through. You know it's coming, right? We don't go near worship services in other, for other religions or interfaith worship services. We don't go into other temples. This is not where we, we don't belong there. We worship one God, and he insists that we worship only him. So we keep away from all worship services, whether they're in a temple or outside of a temple. Secondly, given the fact that many of you come are second generation from an Asian background, if you ever go, when you go back to visit Taiwan, especially, although rural China and so forth, talk to me before you go. Oh, I won't be here much longer. I have a book, uh, but it's probably can't you can't read it. But anyway, I mean, uh, the new pastor can read it. But anyway, the point is, figure this out before you go. Because if you come from a non-Christian family, if you come from a Buddhist or a Shenist or a uh, Taoist family, you're probably going to be invited to make offerings to your ancestors. Burn incense. Make food offerings, drink offerings. Don't do it. But you've got to know ahead of time what kind of thing you're going to be invited to ask. If you're asked to go to their grave and just stand there quietly, fine, you can do that. If you're asked to go to the temple while other people participate in rituals, rituals, that's highly suspect. If you're asked to burn incense or, or make food offerings, make money offerings, keep away from it. We don't worship other gods or spirits. Paul's very clear. Thirdly, if it's a social event, a predominantly social event, like a wedding, or a birthday party. That's not enough justification for going if it's predominantly a social event. Because you've got to figure out, you've got to ask ahead of time, you've got to know whether or not there's going to be religious overtones to it. Certainly a wedding in a temple is problematic. But a wedding outside of a temple is going to be problematic as well if it has religious overtones to it. We don't participate in social events with religious overtones, where people invoke their gods for their blessing. We really have no place in being there. The fourth point he makes is that with all of these restrictions operating within them, we still value relationships with those who worship other gods. And we want to participate in social events as much as we can. So we make friendships. We try to cross ethnic and religious boundaries. But we keep ourselves to merely social, exclusively social events. These are wide open to us. And we invite others to our purely social events. It only becomes problematic when there's religious overlays to the event. Because even if it's a small piece of religious overlay, that colors all the rest of the event, even the social parts, even things as simple as eating and drinking. If you're going to face this concretely, a sermon like this is not enough time to address it. Feel free to come and see me. I have three more months in town. Let's pray together. Father, by the standards of our world and culture, this seems so fussy. And yet, much of our world and our culture simply don't care about any God, let alone care about you. Help us, Father, to engage as much with this world as we can, 
while still prioritizing you, your devotion to us, and our devotion to you. In Jesus' name, amen.